0: Open your Bibles with me, if you would, uh, to our text for today, which is found in Acts chapter eleven, and uh, we're going to be reading from verses nineteen all the way to twenty-six. The chapters in uh, in Acts are getting more and more interesting, at least to me, and uh, we're going to spend a few weeks in in the book of Acts, and then we're going to leave it again for a few weeks as we get ready for um, as we get ready for. Um, um, Easter, and then we'll pick it up again sometime, maybe in the fall. So, um, we don't want to stay all together all the time in the book of Acts, maybe uh, to bore everyone to death. So, we're going to split it up somehow, as we did last year when we started uh, Acts and then paused during Christmas season. Reading from Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26, you may read in your Bible with your own Bible if you'd like, um, or it's already projected on the screen. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they spoke the word to no one except Jews. But among them were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, proclaiming the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number became believers and turned to the Lord. Now our news of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced, and he exhorted them all to, refrain, or to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for an entire year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians please bow your heads with me as we, as we begin. Heavenly Father, your people are here. We're all here. And as always, we are hungry for you. We're thirsting, thirsty for you. Fill us, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to pay attention to that last sentence that I, that I read. It was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. In Scripture, there were two Antiochs. One, um, one is the Antioch that was referred, that's being referred to here in this text. This Antioch is in the uh, is in is in Syria, which is today. If you if you if you were a, if you're somebody like me, a geek like me, like you know, when I was in when I was uh, uh, young, I took the globe, and, and I asked my grandmother who was living in San Diego back then. I was in in the Philippines, and I said, uh, could you buy me a globe? And so she actually, she actually bought me one all the way from here, and, and she shipped it all the way to the Philippines. Um, and I went, I went and memorized everything I can memorize um, on that globe. And and so one of the things I memorized, of course, are the the uh, the the um, the cities and the towns, or sorry, the, the countries and the and the and the capital of the countries and, and everything else. And I know that Antioch is in Syria, which is just north of the Holy Land of of Israel, northeast of Israel. There's another Antioch, which is found in southern Turkey. That's called Pisidian Antioch. The Antioch that's referred to here is the one in Syria. And the word Christians is a word or is a a term that is not claimed by Christians, not originally anyway but it was a term, a name that was given to Christians. It was a name that was derived and maybe in some sense deduced by outsiders about the insiders. A name derived and deduced by outsiders looking in. And in in, in some ways, the word Christians is is a term that is an appraisal of outsiders, about who they see we really are. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and everything else that is attached to what that means. And all these years, the name has stood the test of time. Who are we, really? You know, the Christian church wasn't always sure about who uh, she, she was. Initially, the church um, started out a, as a sect, a subgroup within Judaism. And, um, and, and, and Judaism really, more or less, was an insular group. And, and in some sense, a closed-minded and short-sighted, self-absorbed group. There was a, a, there's a story that is told in the Midrash um, in, the, uh, in, in the Jewish uh, um, religion about uh, God who shows up in a room filled with all of these Jewish rabbis and, and um, they're pouring over pages of Scripture, spe- especially the first five books of the Bible, the, the Torah, the, 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 the books that were given to Moses. And, and, and uh, they were pouring over it and they were intently studying every page of, of, of the books, the Torah. And God comes into the room, goes into the room, and then, and then they don't notice God, and finally they do notice God, um, and then God points out, that's not exactly what I'm saying over here. And one of the rabbis turns, turns around and says, God, would you please leave us alone? You've given us the book, it's ours. Who are we really? The church, the Christian church, wasn't always sure about itself or herself. It came out eventually from the shadow of Judaism, an insular group, a closed-minded group in some ways, short-sighted, self-absorbed. And so it became necessary. It becomes necessary for God, not just at that time, but actually in other times in the church's history as well. For God to prod His church, that is to poke His church, so that the church can come to herself and be who she's meant to be. And to do what she's meant to do. And how does God do it? Our text here shows us how God did it. And how God in general does it. Poking his own church. The church that is the apple of his eye. His beloved. In order for his beloved to come to herself. And fulfill the purpose for which he created her. And we find, I find here in, these, in, this, in this text three things. I'm sure there are more, but we're, we have time for three today. First thing I, I, that we notice from, from this text is that, um, here's my clicker, is that God compels the church. To step out of her comfort zone by every means necessary. You will notice in, 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 in chapter, I mean, in verse, uh, uh, verse 19, that the, um, the opportunity that God took in uh, compelling His church to step outside of her comfort zone in order to begin living the purpose for which she was created, that that um, opportunity came when there was a, a persecution that arose as a result of the ministry, the short ministry, and the martyrdom of Stephen, of which we re- read about in, in chapter 8, and then later on, um, in chapter 7, chapter 8 of, of the book of Acts. So God uses um, whatever means necessary, whatever means he finds, not that he costs or he causes persecutions but he uses every means that are necessary, every means that are available to him, and perhaps even bad things that happen to God's people, and he puts a silver silver lining over those things in order to compel the church to step out of her comfort zone in order to discover who she really is and what God has meant her to be and to do. God compels and you might find that to be a little bit problematic, but it is true. He forces us to step outside of what we're comfortable being, or who we're comfortable being, and what we're comfortable doing, and uses whatever he deems necessary to get us out of, our, out of the funk. And once again here in, in, in our chapter, in chapter 11, he used the, that persecution that erupted, because of the, the short ministry, the powerful ministry of Stephen. Some years ago, we could say that our church was also taken out of its, our church, by, me, by that I mean, our church here, and maybe even um, all the churches uh, in the world. Um, the Christian church in general was taken out of its, uh, was compelled to step out of, of her comfort zone when COVID-19 hit. You all remember that? And yes, COVID is still around, maybe much reduced now in size and stature. But when COVID started, it was this humongous monster that exposed the weaknesses and the comfort zones of the Christian churches all over the world including ours here in auburn it was covid-19 and god used covid-19 it took covid-19 in some ways to for us to realize here at auburn i remember sitting i remember sitting over 2 years ago it was sometime in november of i i guess it was 2020 i I'm, my, my my mind is probably getting a little blurry now because uh, because it's been, it, it, it seems like COVID was another time, another world, wasn't it? To come out of COVID and still be here, it's unreal. But it took COVID for us to take, to, 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 for, for, for our church to come out of, it, of her comfort zone in some ways and start addressing some of the things that should have been addressed years ago in the life of our church. And I remember sitting in that one um, board meeting, and I remember if I may name three names because these three individuals became catalysts for what, were, what, what, what was going to happen in the succeeding uh, months and years. And I remember sitting there and I was praying because I was I'd, I'd really at that point at that point in the life in my ministry here as your pastor I'd been really you know as a pastor you you I I, I have very Two very different set of eyes than most people in the congregation. Having served in other churches, I have I, been able to scan uh, our church here at Auburn and see what I thought were necessary changes in order to make our lives here together more meaningful and to become more faithful to our calling as a church. But I waited and waited against my will. I wanted to just hit the floor running. But I waited and waited and waited. And sometimes I said to myself, maybe I waited, I waited too long. By that time, I'd been here almost five years. And I gave myself a, uh, it was, this is a rule of thumb that I, I, I picked up from a, a pastor friend of mine. He says, Mel, when you get to have your own church... Make sure that the first five years of your stay in that church is all about you getting to know the church. Don't shake the church up. And I listened to that wise advice. But I tell you, it was against my will to do that. It was against my nature to do that. And it took COVID And when COVID started to hit, and and, and I realized that I was not the only one that that had that that, that burden in my heart to see the changes that need to happen, the transformation that needs to happen in the church. And, and, And lo and behold, COVID brought three individuals out. And it was Dave. And it was Deb. And one is no longer here, he's now in Southern California. You know who it is? You remember? Chris Genovaga. They all spoke up. And as soon as they spoke up, I, I grabbed the bull by the horns and I said, this is the moment I've been waiting for. This is the time. And if all the time, <laughs> it had to be during COVID. And two years later, that team that was formed because of that meeting that night has caused many transformation in our church today. And here I want to tell you that I, I want to thank those individuals and those that were added to that team, including Adam. Um, who else am I missing? I'm missing somebody. Lisa and Mira those became our planning task force team, which the church board just last Thursday, through the request of the leader, our leader Dave, we put to rest with many thanks for all the work they've done. Why did we put it to rest? Because the church is now ready for the next level of transformation and those, trans- those things that are going to be happening will start happening this year, 2024. It's an exciting time, all because of COVID, all because God spoke to individuals other than me and lo, I should have known that. I know that, but you know, I was so impatient to move. And yet it took COVID to bring three individuals out. So that they too were compelled to step out of their comfort zone in order order to to make changes that are necessary for the church. And that is exactly what happened also in, in, um, in Acts chapter 11. Those people that ended up in that general vicinity of Syria north-northeast of, of, uh, of Israel, of, of the Holy Land. Uh, Phoenicia, that's, uh, that's along the coast in Lebanon today. Cyprus, that's, uh, that is a, 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 um, um, an island off the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. And God took or compelled the church to step out of her comfort zone in order for changes and transformation to to, to uh, to be made. And the word that we have here is that they were scattered. The words that I actually want to use are the words they were driven out in order for them to wake up and be the church that God always Meant them to be. And the second thing I pick up from this text is this that God quietly unsettles a few mavericks to burst the church's insular bubble. That's exactly what happens here. The church that came out of Jerusalem was an insular church. Yes, they were doing, they were, they were witnessing, yes, but they were witnessing to one culture, their culture leaving the rest of the world without the gospel. And they were oblivious to the fact that when God gave, when Jesus Christ gave them the gospel commission, it was to the ends of the earth, to everyone. Not just to those that looked like them, and acted like them, and had the same traditions as them. So God unsettles Not the whole group, mind you. Unsettles only a few. It only takes a few to unsettle the rest of us. It took three. In this instance, if we were to use this as an analogy of our own church. It took three. Well, if you could add me, I'm number four. God quietly unsettles a few mavericks. And our text tells us where they come from. They come from the two places of Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyprus is off the eastern... It's Cyprus is that you know that, that um, island nation that I talked to you about. Um, and Cyrene is way down south in North, North Africa. A few individuals, mavericks, who did not see things the way the majority saw things... Our text, in fact, tells us that the majority preached the word, but only, uh, they, they only preached the word to the Jews. And God unsettles a few mavericks to burst the church's insular bubble, despite the majority, creating a dilemma. Creating a dilemma. What is that dilemma? That now the church is filled with people who don't look like we do who don't act like we do who have different culture who have different traditions that sweet than we do now what are we going to do about it so god gives his own church a problem they need to solve by moving ahead of them and by unsettling a few while the majority remains insular And the third thing God does what what God ends up doing is that God dispatches help from other places among individuals He is already raising apart from that group in Antioch. He's already been raising for that hour. And God really does work in mysterious ways, doesn't, doesn't He? And when I was Showing my impatience and God, I, you know, and I lost track of the fact that God does these things, and lo and behold, three pops up, pop up, and bursts the church's bubble in order for us to become more transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ as a church. So God dispatches two individuals to Antioch. He dispatches two mavericks, aside from those two other those, those mavericks that, that come from Cyprus and Cyrene, who ended up there in, in the city of Antioch. There are two other mavericks that God has been raising. We've learned we we learned about them earlier in the book of Acts. We learned about Barnabas. We heard, first of all, of Barnabas in chapter five of the book of Acts. Remember, remember him? When Ananias and Sapphira conspired to keep a big portion of or the entirety of the, of the proceeds of, of the sale of their, of, of their property instead of helping the, need, the needy Christians of the day. It was Barnabas. It was Barnabas that sold his property and gave it all to the church. And of course, we learn about the Apostle Paul, Saul, and his conversion there on the road to Damascus, we learn about him, first of all, in Acts chapter 8, when he was right there holding everybody's tunics while those people were stoning Stephen to death. God was raising him, even if, even if he didn't realize it at that time. God was raising him for this hour. And we may be confident, lest we lose hope, that our church is heading south and its church has lost its vigor. No. If this church continues to be the apple of God's eye, He will always raise individuals from among you, from among this us, or even from from beyond the walls of this church, because He will not let the apple of His eye see their own demise. You are the apple of God's eye. And I'm not the only one that God is putting a burden on. And I'm pretty sure that you too, that the Holy Spirit, is talking to you as well. And so he brings Barnabas. Barnabas is the one who was sent by the church in Jerusalem to check things out over there in Antioch. You know, those unruly Greeks. Those unruly Hellenists. And by the way, the word Hellenist here describes not just the Jews that spoke Greek, which was Greek in, in those days, was the, uh, the, the uh, not the lingua franca, but the cultural, the, 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 the universal culture of the day. Everybody spoke Greek. Everybody knew Greek culture. Not just the Jews who spoke Greek, but the Greeks themselves, and also other cultures who also spoke, spoke Greek and knew Greek culture. The church sent them there, perhaps, to, you know, to check things out and, and, and tell them, hey, you need to start behaving. Why are you moving beyond what the church has done so far? Only to realize through the encouragement and through the eyes of the, 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 the wise eyes of, of Barnabas that this is not the work of just mavericks, this is the work of God. And God is in the business of poking, of prodding his church in order for his church to move forward. Even if that means that only a few gets it initially. And so Barnabas, Barnabas goes there and checks things out, and then he, he realizes this, this is nothing but from God. And, he, and so he affirms what they're doing, and he encourages them, and he tells them keep going, keep going. This is the Barnabas who, uh, who sets the church's mission pattern. He's the one that sets the mission pattern for the entire church in Antioch and also for all of us. And that pattern is one that we need to learn more and more as a church. The pattern that a church exists to make disciples who make other disciples. That is our primary purpose as a church. We are here to make disciples who make other disciples. Can you say that with me? We're here to make disciples who make other disciples. And you know what Barnabas does? He shows them how it's done. What does he do? He goes and seeks out Saul, Paul. Who at that time was, uh, you, know, you know, had been in Tarsus for a good some, maybe a couple of years. We know that from when, when Paul tells us. That's what he did after he was, uh, after he, um, after his, uh, his conversion experience in, uh, on the road to Damascus. He says, I went to Tarsus. What? And he was there for, and in, in Arabia also. And he was there for about three and a half years, something like that. What was he doing there for? What was he there for? What was he doing there? He... Uh, Saul, or Paul. Let's just call him Paul, so so as not to confuse ourselves. Paul was there essentially so that he could um, he could clear his mind. Here he could reset his worldview, and he could rediscover who he is. And so Barnabas sets the the church's missional pattern of making disciples who make other disciples by discipling the one who God has already chosen to be the standard bearer of the church's mission to the ends of the world, to the non-Jews, to everyone else, to you and me. God sends Barnabas to disciple Paul. And then Paul would in turn disciple the church in Antioch and would cause the church in Antioch to explode Beyond the bounds of that city. And by the way, I was checking out um, how, how big was Antioch? Antioch was the size, Antioch, that city of Antioch was the size, uh, is the size of Sacramento today. It's a big city. About half a million people lived in it. It was not a small city like our city, small in comparison. So it was Barnabas. Who would connect the church to the one person God was already raising. Is there anybody here that's being raised by God to be a champion for him? Are you being raised by God? You don't need to tell me. You'll just show up one of these days and I'll be pleasantly surprised. Well, not really. Because that's what God does. He raises people. For such the hour as he desires. And then, of course, Paul is that second person that God sends to that young, young, growing church in Antioch. Paul, who retreated for about three years to Tarsus to sort his mind, his worldview, and his calling. Paul, who, who God has already anointed, he told him, and he told him in, on the road to Damascus, he told him. And yet he, had, he took some time to figure things out and rearrange his brain. It was Paul who took Barnabas's mission pattern to the next level and took that pattern to the ends of the world and would transform the church forever. Because it was Paul who took the disciple-making process of the, uh, to the neighborhoods of Antioch, transforming Antioch to the point where the people in Antioch started calling everyone, all of the believers in that city Christians. And it was Paul who helped create a Christian identity of mission. That the Christian church is not to be an insular group. It's not to be a short sighted group. It's not to be a church. It's not to be a church that gazes at its own navel at the expense of a dying world. In Antioch, the church came to herself and discovered who she really was who she's been all along and what she was meant to do and was meant to be. The church's sole reason for for existence is to make disciples who make other disciples in compliance with the gospel commission in Matthew 28, 18 and 19. What does it say there? Go Therefore, and make disciples. Of who? Of the Jews only? Of those that look like us? Act like us? Think like us? No. Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. And then he promises, you won't be doing it alone. I will be with you. And he might as well also have said, I will raise people who will do it with you so you can succeed. And in Antioch, God sent his two best men, Barnabas and Paul, and they sure did not fail God, nor the church there in Antioch. Last night, our microchurch uh, core team met once again, and, and this time we met in, uh, at the Sims house, 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock last night, and it was so much fun, and we kept reading uh, from this book, The Table I Long For, learning to participate in the mission and family of God, and and we, and, and we read from four chapters. Um, I think I might, I might have been pushing it a little bit too fast. But um, um, here, the, the Pastor Sean Brace, who is an Adventist pastor, who is also doing microchurch plant, like what we're starting to do here uh, in Auburn. Um, and, 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 he says, and he says basically that the mission of the church, the mission of the church is not to be, just among ourselves, but to go out and be the chaplains of our neighborhood. Those are his own words. Um, To be chaplains of, and and, and I'm reminded of of a um, sermon that I I, I preached some time ago, uh, declaring to all of you that I had indeed declared myself without my neighborhood knowing. I declared myself in the eyes of God as my neighborhood's chaplain. And you remember some of the things that I said to you then that um, one of the things I started doing was I started delivering my bread uh, to to my neighbors. And I could tell you that there's been some pretty immediate effect effect to to, to what I've done. And and that is that we're becoming known for something else other than just that tree house, that house with the tree house over there, uh, you know, on the side of that hill. Uh, we're also being known now as, you know, the, the parents of our, our two poodle, uh, poodles, K- Kitsu and, 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 uh, and, and Sequoia. One of our neighbors, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, painted a beautiful rock and put it in front of our house without, uh, without us knowing it, and w- which reads, Poodle Patrol, and puts the initials of our two dogs. That's who we are now. We are the parents of S and K. Um, um, but then something else also, and I discovered this through my wife, that... We are now known in that neighborhood, in our neighborhood, our house anyway, as the minister's house. I have a goal, a goal that I will not declare to my neighbors, but I'll declare to you. I have a dream that someday that pronoun will be replaced By another pronoun, my minister's house. That's my goal. Sean Bray says in his book that this is what it means to be an evangelist, to be a missionary to incarnate ourselves in our own neighborhoods and to become our neighbor's keepers. Even if they don't know it, even if they don't appreciate it, to show up in the lives of our neighbors and to never be tempted into thinking that evangelism consists of what he calls drive-by evangelism. And he tells a very funny story, as a matter of fact, in the beginning of one of his chapters. I'm going to just read it. It's so funny. Uh, it's funny, but it's true. <laughs> uh, uh, what chapter was that, guys? Um, I'm referring now. As seven. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Yeah, you were there last night. So, um. Here's what he says. This is uh, chapter seven. So he describes uh, a, a, an experience that he, uh, he and his church uh, had one Sabbath after church. Um, And here's, it was a Sunday afternoon, Saturday afternoon, right after our worship service had ended, and the whole congregation had filed uh, onto the street. We were all laughing and talking, when suddenly a loud Ford Bronco came screeching to a halt right next to me. The driver rolled down his window, handed me a magazine, and, and then said, can you hold this for me? I'll be right back. Before I knew it, he says, he peeled away and sped down the street, never to be seen again. Trying to, pro- uh, to process what had just happened, I looked down at the magazine and it suddenly all made sense. Resting in my hands was my very own copy of the Watchtower. And right then I realized something. I had been the unsuspecting victim of drive-by evangelism. Thank God I wasn't drive-by shooting. Evangelism is not something we do to escape the reality of relationships with our neighbors. Evangelism is what we do with our neighbors skin to skin. As we become known by them, and we get to know them. And as we earn the right... We earn the right to invite them to the kingdom. To become so embedded in the life of our neighborhoods as to be given a new name by them. I want my neighbors to call me their pastor someday. So should you. Because in Antioch, that's what happened. They became so embedded in the life of their community that the community called them, gave them a name. A name that has stuck all these years Christians. I have another dream. I'm a dreamer. And maybe in many ways it is already happening and to the extent that it is I rejoice in the Lord because our church truly punches above its weight in many ways spiritual and otherwise. But still I have a dream. And my dream is that the neighbors our neighbors the neighborhood that surround our church our community and our homes will give us a new name as an appraisal of who we really are according to how they see us behaving and this is my dream I want this to happen to us in increasing ways. And in the city of Auburn, the disciples there became known as real Christians. Wouldn't that be something? And in the city of Auburn and beyond, the disciples became known as real Christians. I don't want another name. I just want an adjective in front of that name, Christians. Because that Christian, nobody, we cannot improve on that. The Greeks in Antioch gave us a huge favor by giving us that name. I don't want any other name. I just want an adjective in front of that name. Real. Christians. Our mission is to be a church that makes disciples who make other disciples. And the way we want to do that is we want to come here every week and begin by worshiping together, get ready for the next week of connecting with others, enlarging our web of connectivities, connect, connections with others, and serving them. And then come back again here and get replenished. This is our pit stop. And we're going to keep doing this until Jesus comes. We will never arrive. We'll get better at it. But we'll keep doing this. We will worship. We will connect. We will serve until Jesus comes. And the Lord is with you. He promised so. I am with you always to the ends of the earth. Let us, let us pray. Father God, thank you for making us your disciples. Give us, O God, the strength, the passion to be disciple makers as well. As we leave this place to connect with people around us and to serve them. Thank you for your promise of being with us. Until next time. Until next Sabbath where we come here together once again to get replenished, ready for the next week. Bless your people, O God, the apple of your own eye. In Jesus' name, amen.